Peter McLaren is a distinguished professor in critical studies at the Donna Ford Atala College of Educational Studies at Chapman University, professor emeritus at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow of the American Educational Research Association. He's an award-winning author and editor of nearly 50 books with writings translated into 25 languages. Professor McLaren is active politically in both North and Latin America and is the co-founder of Instituto McLaren de Pedagogia Critica in Ensenada, Mexico. Peter McLaren, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. And so I really want to begin where I actually usually end our, these kind of conversations where I ask people about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. Because you, it's like it's been your life's mission to think about these things. A lot of people have like a, a short answer, but I have a feeling you can, you can tell us practically and with examples and things. So I, I you, know, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of world are we leaving our children in the next generation? What are some ways we can improve our current systems? Well, I tend to be pessimistic. I'm not optimistic about the future, but I do have hope. And I think we have to distinguish optimism from hope. The difference, I think, between optimism and hope is that hope has to be conjugated with struggle. And hope has to be, hope has to move beyond the kind of facile notions of hope that we speak about so often on a daily basis, at least in popular culture. So I think hope has to be conjugated with struggle. And I think that's something that Cornell West has made so clear. And I tend to, I, I'm a utopian. I will say that. I'm a utopian. I think we need utopia, but I think there's a distinction between abstract utopia and concrete utopia. You know, an abstract utopia would be something like science fiction. You know, there's another world and it's a, it's a perfect world and it's, you know, and it's been created off the planet, and, uh, but it's only accessible to few pe a few people. That kind of abstract utopia doesn't really interest me very much. But a concrete utopia is connected to the real world struggles that people have, that they're struggling for right now which is, you know, access to, to dignity, to three square meals a day, to a roof over their head, and to at least basic access to medicine and healthcare. Now, that's not what most people talk about when they talk about utopia, but it's something that people are fighting for right now all over the world. You know, I try to stress the idea that concrete utopia is, is something to do with changing the world as it is, without avoiding the messy web of horror that is inflicted upon much of the world, without avoiding that, uh, without turning away from that. And I think that's why, you know, at least in my work, I try to write from a rage, from the perspective of rage, a critical rage. And it's something that, um, I mean, I'm just unable to do it otherwise. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm a socialist. I'm a revolutionary Marxist. I'm a humanist. I also uh, work from a Catholic perspective of liberation theology, which has come into my work over the last few years. And so I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to bring together Marx and Jesus. <laughs> it's not easy. I think, yeah, but I think it's, you know, if you, if, and I can't 
claim to be a biblical scholar, but I think that there's elements of socialism. I mean, there's lots, lots of elements in the Bible, but there's elements if you really, you know, follow it. The people that I guess who are Christians, but who might be alienated by the label of socialism you know, or the label of Marxism, or when you uh, identify what it is, Christian values. No, absolutely. I think that, you know, Jesus's teachings are socialism brought to life. And I think that, uh, you know, Marx, well, of course, we, socialism predated Marx, you know, uh, socialism was around a long time before Marx. But I do think the teachings of Jesus really, in, in some fundamental sense, prefigure socialism. And many great socialists and writers were influenced by the biblical teachings of Jesus and the early Christian communities. And that's not to, you know, downplay atheists, because very often I've noticed that atheists make the best Christians. <laughs> It's ironic that, but uh, you can be outside of it but, and, and maybe understand the essential elements that sometimes it gets lost when you, you're in it so deeply. So I want to go back to what you said about, you know, differentiating between you're utopian, you are uh, not optimistic, but you have hope and a critical hope. Our audience is a lot of students. I mean, that's really who it's for, and then there's other general audiences. So, and we have like half of them are from the arts and others from STEM, you know, it's general. And not all of them are studying pedagogy or, you know, socialism, or they, they, that's not their background. But mm -hmm. I noticed, you know, working, mentoring them, that, that they do have a lot of hope and that, I'm really curious about ways, you know, of course they have anxiety too, you know, because their eyes are open, but they have a lot of hope and, and good intentions. And I really, I want to know is how can we harness that? And how can we share these ideas, these principles, you know, giving kind of clear, I know it's not simple, but kind of clear examples that would say, you know, this is something, this is a way we can move toward that in a way that doesn't alienate other ideologies they might have been brought up with and they realize what they recognize as the good, the good ideas. In it. Well, I, I approach this through storytelling, through telling stories about mistakes I've made in my own life and, and obstacles I've overcome and, and, and issues that I'm still struggling with. You know, you try to create a psychosocial moratorium inside a classroom, but oftentimes I begin with storytelling. I talk about my own path to, to criticality. You know, I, I can share a little bit of that with you as an example, if, you'd, if you're interested. When I was a young man, of course, I grew up in a working class family. Uh, I was an only child. My mother had a hysterectomy. I was an only child in Toronto, which is my home city. I'd always uh, dreamt of being a writer. Uh, you know, I'd written a science fiction story, I think in grade eight, that won the, uh, the school award, best writing award. And so I was, <laughs> that, that stuck with me all the way and now I'm 72. And I'll come back to that in a second, but I ended up as an elementary school teacher. I was teaching grades two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight in Toronto. And during that time, it was an inner city school, and it was a school that was considered uh, one of the most, this is how the media described it, one of the most dangerous schools, uh, you know, in the country and in the area. And it was, you know, an area where there were a lot of new immigrants coming in from all kinds of different countries. I think there was 34 different languages spoken at this school. I had left teaching in a wealthy village in order to teach in this school. 
because I felt that the students that I was teaching in the wealthy village would get to college in spite of whatever teacher was teaching them because of the class location of their families. You know, they're very well off. They were going to make it. You know, the parents would make sure they made it. They would hire extra tutors or whatever that was needed to help their children. I wanted a more powerful challenge. And so I went to teach in this school in this, what was called the inner city suburb. It was called the Jane Finch Corridor. And it's still talked about in the press as a, as a very dangerous, volatile community. And I kept a diary of my experiences in order to help keep my sanity. And so I wrote about what happened to me on a day-to-day basis. And I was there for approximately five years, I think four and a half years, something like that. And because I'd wanted to be a writer, I thought, well, maybe I could publish my diary and maybe it would help. Maybe it would in some way inform, you know, Canadians about what teachers have to go through and young people have to go through and how the school system wasn't meeting the needs of immigrant, you know, young immigrants. And so I really hadn't any background in theory at that time. You know, I, I had been in the 60s, you know, a hippie. I'd hitchhiked to the United States. I'd met some of the Black Panthers. I'd met Timothy Leary and uh, Allen Ginsberg encouraged me about my writing. And I'd, I'd had these amazing experiences in the U.S. as a 19-year-old. But I had no formal training in sociology or anthropology or pedagogy or critical theory. But I just picked up a little bit and I put it in my book. And the editor said to me, oh, Peter, uh, take out your attempt at explaining what's going on in the school. And I said, what? And the editor said, let the events speak for themselves. And I I thought at that time as a young man, I thought, oh. And the editor said, "Um, yeah, uh, you know, you're such a good writer. You bring us right into the classroom. Let the readers make up their own mind about what they want to think about what happened. And I thought, okay, that kind of makes sense to me. I didn't realize this was a big mistake. So I took out all my attempts at trying to explain what was going on and just wrote about the incidents, many of which depicted you know, violent encounters, you know, students um, attacking other students. Sometimes we were shot at with, with rifles uh, from the high rises, not to hit us, but to scare us, you know, explode some windows in the school during recess, things like that. And the book became the number seven best-selling book in Canada at the time, and that this was 1980. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, I was interviewed by TV stations and radio stations, and I, I thought somehow I'd made a contribution until I started reading some of the reviews that came out. And a couple of them had cartoons as part of the review, painting me as this white, you know, heroic teacher, and the students as kind of bestial, animal-like. And the stories were, how did this brave young teacher uh, survive teaching in the jungle? And I began to think, oh my goodness, what have I done? And then I remember I took a leave of absence from teaching, and I was accepted into a PhD. PhD program in the University of Toronto uh, called the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And um, this was a really great program. And I remember driving on my way to my first class and I was listening to the radio. This was CBC National Radio. Listeners were from Vancouver to Halifax. And the, the interviewer was interviewing a white supremacist. Canada has them, unfortunately. Uh, they're everywhere that white people are, it seems. And I was thinking to myself, I was kind of full of my myself in those days. And I was thinking, 
well, why are they wasting time, you know, interviewing this racist, this white supremacist? They could be interviewing me about my new book. You know, that's what, how I was thinking. And I'm driving along on my way to class. And as the interview was winding down, the interviewer said, well, thank you very much for being on the show. Of course, I disagree with your opinions, but thank you for sharing. And, and then the, the white supremacist said, excuse me, could you just give me a few more seconds? And the interviewer said, okay, you've got uh, 20 seconds. And the white supremacist said, I've got a book I want to recommend to all Canadians. The book is Cries from the Corridor by Peter McLaren. And the interviewer said, well, I know that book. Uh, people are talking about it. And, and I would think Peter McLaren would not share any of your views. And the white supremacist said, well, that might be true. Uh, but if you see how these dark-skinned students from other countries are acting like animals in our schools, you want to change the immigration laws to keep them out. You know, I almost, I stopped the car, pulled over the side of the road, almost went through the windshield. <laughs> And I started to tremble and I started to think, you know, what have I done? And I began to think that nothing really speaks for itself. Creativity doesn't speak for itself. It always speaks in a context. In that context, I think it's our responsibility to explain that context, to in, in some way interpret that context in, in our own way. So when I came to the United States, after I finished my PhD and I came to the U.S. and I had all kinds of publishers wanting to publish the book in the U.S., and I kept saying no. And then finally, I said, okay, but you have to let me flesh out the context of what was going on, the school, the community, and you have to give me room to be self-critical. And the book came out, it was called Life in schools. It's in its sixth edition, and it's still used quite a bit in, you know, teacher education programs. And so that's kind of a story about you know, how I learned about the creativity, you know, doesn't just stand alone. It's never just self-evident that creativity is always born in a contextual specificity that at least needs to be challenged and or at least explained. But creativity always carries with it our prejudices. It's always populated by other people's meanings. So I, I work through stories like that. So it's, no, it's very interesting that we have to be open to different perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that, you know, even with the best intentions, you know, white nationalists, um, you know, someone who's completely from the other side of the spectrum, or maybe not, you wouldn't even want to be on the same spectrum, but could find something or find something illustrative. You can't really, as you say, contain people's imaginations. And likewise, because this is an educational project to the, um, the creative yeah. process, so there's so many people who have, you know, their idea of reforming education is, uh, I don't know, you know, more standardized tests or more things that I think are teaching people to become more like the machines they're using. So I, I would love to hear about, I mean, your books must have, you must have had all this feedback as well from teachers, as you said, it's been, it's been used teacher training programs. I would like to hear about the, the great initiatives, some of those inspiring teachers as a way that inspire others so we can go at it positively. Well, for me, discovering the work of Paulo Freire was very important in my own work. You know, I was approaching education from the perspective more of, you know, the surrealists making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. And I was doing things that were Freirean-like but I didn't have a name that, you know, that I, that I could use. And when I started reading Paolo's work, 
suddenly there was a whole sort of developed philosophy of praxis that seemed to uh, resemble some of the things that I was doing and that other teachers that I'd known were doing, and suddenly I could put a name to it. I've been part of a group of people that have developed what we call critical pedagogy. I guess about 10 years or so, 15 years, I decided to rename it revolutionary critical pedagogy. And I can, can explain why, because critical pedagogy, I think, became domesticated. And I met Paulo in 1985. And uh, Paulo was kind enough to write a couple of prefaces for several of my books. And he had been reading my work, and I just was astounded that he even knew my work. He's such a generous soul, and he invited me to Brazil on a number of occasions, and I worked with some Brazilian educators, eventually with educators all around Latin America, including Venezuela with under President Hugo Chavez, which was amazing. But basically, a critical pedagogy is an introduction into a way of life. It's not a methodology. A lot of teachers think somehow that, that there's a step-by-step process that you need to follow. You know, you begin with this, you begin, you know. And yeah, sometimes if you're teaching a a specific lesson, obviously you want to know what you're doing uh, and have a sense of where you're going to go in a lesson. But essentially, uh, critical pedagogy is a philosophy. It's it's a way you engage everyday life. It's understanding, you know, uh, the asymmetrical relations of power and privilege that exist in society. And for me, uh, what I found astounding and teaching uh, in the university. You know, I was a professor uh, at Miami of Ohio for eight years, and then I went on to teach for 20 years at UCLA, and now I'm in, I think, my sixth year at Chapman. And uh, in all of those cases, there was never a course on capitalism. People were talking about educational reform, you know, and uh, educational reform is always constricted. It's always constrained by capitalism. I mean, it's the greatest sort of constraint on humanization or liberation. And I believe that the goal of education is humanization and liberation uh, that we can best achieve through creating a socialist alternative to capitalism. But there was never a, a course focused on capitalism. What is it? How do we analyze it? Offering different perspectives, of course. Some might be pro-capitalist and some might be, you know, critical of capitalism. But there was never, you know, a course dedicated to that in any of the programs that I could see. And it just seemed to me that that needs to be, if we live in a capitalist society, we've taken it for granted that there's no alternative. You know, Margaret Thatcher said, you know, used to turn Tina, there is no alternative. You know, it seems somehow that we've just given up on thinking about those alternatives. And uh, unfortunately, when we start thinking about them, it might be too late, given the warning that we have about nuclear war and about climate change. It may, in fact, be too late. So that's the number one thing that I found incredibly problematic working in schools of education. There were courses on inequality. There were courses, you know, on that. There were courses on, you know, inclusion. But all of those issues can be ameliorated within the capitalist system. In other words, if you want to simply talk about funding, taking funding from capital and moving it towards labor, that can happen to a certain extent, but it's not really uprooting the fundamental basis of capitalist society, which is the exploitation of of labor power, uh, the augmentation of value. And so we need a system that breaks from that social universe of value augmentation. 
And by value, I'm talking about monetarized wealth. I'm not talking about values like good and evil, etc. I'm using value in that term. And so that's that's the first thing. And secondly, you know, a critical pedagogy obviously looked at the experiences of young people and began with student experiences, their life histories as strengths, right? And so we got away from the deficit model of students. We begin where the students are and we work with their strengths. And of course, inclusion is important. And we look at making our methodologies more inclusive, our pedagogies more inclusive, et cetera. That's not an unimportant issue. And we focus a lot on identity. And that's important too. You know, I think this intersectionality is important. Uh, how race, class, gender, et cetera. You know, we look at the LGBTQ community and we look at how they intersect in society at large and how, in fact, they're impacted by a school policy at the national level, at the local levels, etc. Now, that's all important, but we very often pay too scant attention to the issue of class. We talk about our social location. We talk about socioeconomic status. Let's call it what it is. It's our objective class location within the system of capitalism, and we use euphemisms to sort of avoid it. And so very often, Paulo's work, and you know, Paulo was put in prison for 70 days. He began by teaching students in Brazil, and these were adults, to read and write in a very short period of time. He was seen as a threat in Brazil to the local military government, and he was put in, in prison, and he would have been executed if he'd stayed in the country. He went to Peru, he went to Chile, he eventually ended up for a, a short time in Harvard, he went to work for the World Council of Churches, and he remained in close contact with a number of us here in the United States. His sense of critical literacy, how to read the word and the world simultaneously. And how do you read the word and the world? And his approach was absolutely amazing. But I think over the years, it became domesticated. In other words, there were a lot of Frarian teachers who you know, would sit in a circle with their students, which was great, talk about current events, which was great, what's happening in your life, what's happening in your life, and somehow that was cr apparently critical pedagogy. Critical pedagogues are, are the pedagogues that are out with the Black Lives Matter folks, you know, on the streets. They're working to change society, and it's teaching to change the world. And it, I think it was being used to accommodate. It had great intentions, well-intended, but I think too often used to accommodate what is rather than move towards what should be. I know that people, sometimes it's a matter of like feeling better to be acquainted with what the world is, you know, not being afraid to say and identify it, but then people are afraid to make that next step forward. One, they kind of, maybe they're pessimistic, you know, or two, because they may think it's not going to happen. I'm going to, you know, try to do this. I'm going to try to provide, you know, let's work towards universal health care or something, you know, but it, it's going to just be this Sisyphean rock. It's just going to keep on. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I think that's one element of it. And the other element is sometimes it's just not, not nice to say it, but they don't, they, yeah, they don't have confidence it will happen. They Or two, they feel they're realists and they feel like that would be nice, but what's it going to cost? It's going to cost too much. Yeah. So they have these kind of things. So is there a middle way or like a, sta a staggered way that we can move to where the world should be that doesn't alienate others? Or for you, is it like, you know, we just have to like identify systems that aren't serving the, the, all of the population? 
you know, that lesson was taught to me. Uh, I can still recall it when I was at Miami University of Ohio and I was teaching. You know, I was walking in with my, you know, little sunglasses on and, and my leather jacket. You know, I was standing in front of the class and I remember one of my students was in a military uniform. He, uh, I guess he was part of the, the National Guard or something. I don't know. But at any rate, he was in a military uniform and he was uh, telling me that, uh, you know, he couldn't raise these issues with his principal and that everything I was saying, he just loved, but he said it would be impossible to even raise these issues uh, with his school and he had a family. And suddenly I began to think, here I am, you know, a tenured professor and, you know, I'm coming in, I've got my motorcycle jacket on and I'm talking about revolution. And I began to, th to think that something is a bit amiss here. And so you talk, you know, a lot of people don't think dialectically. What they do is they, they say, it's either a revolution, and I have a lot of comrades all around the world that think that way. That's fine. We need a revolution. Um, and, but they think of revolution and reform as opposites. It's not either or. It's not either revolution or reform. It's reform and revolution. It's not either or. It's both and. And that's looking at things dialectically. So... I look at a lot of teachers, you know, are hoping to feed their, their families and to look after their loved ones and their children. And who am I to go in and say, you're not really a real Frarian pedagogue unless you do this or that? Who, who am I to say that? You know, that's irresponsible. And so I've always approached it as, you know, there are things that we can do now but let's think about things that we can do in the future. Let's just keep this vision open. You know, there's no freedom which is not simultaneously the freedom for all. We have to keep that in mind. And so that was a lesson. It was just something that hit me looking at this, maybe because he was wearing a uniform and he stuck out. I don't know, but I've always remembered the feeling inside of me. And I thought, tone yourself down, Peter, and, and start thinking dialectically. Uh, and I think that dialectical reasoning uh, is part of where we need to go. Um, we need more of a both and uh, than we need an either or. And, uh, and there's a lot of people on the left that will be very angry if you don't come in with the most militant approach. But no, I mean, you do what you can in the circumstances you can. And, you know, it's, you, you work through your own self-determination and you push that self-determination. Uh, and that self, the fact that we're self-determined means that we have a, re a responsibility. And that responsibility, it also, you know, has to do with, with, with your family and whether you feed yourself. And, um, and so it's not just, it's not as simple as revolution or reform. So I'd like to go back to a little bit about your teaching career span, you know, from elementary school in the city. You know, you're at Chapman University now. You're emeritus pre professor, I believe, at UCLA and other universities. So it's, it's really spanned a lot. You've, your name is, you know, on institutes. <laughs> but I guess those are, there are different parts of this whole map of education, right? So there's the 
education. You know, you said it was so important, it was like context too. I think that so many, and, and students have said this to me, like they said, you know, they're in university now, but they, you know, they're elementary, they're middle, they're high school. They felt, gosh, there's so much they weren't, they don't even remember what they learned. They, they passed all the tests, but they don't know what they learned and also don't know why they're learning it. So I just feel like they, even if we learned less, we accumulated fewer facts by rote, but we knew why, as you say, you know, it just, so speaking about early education or up to, you know, before high school or high school, where the fundamentals of critical thinking should be imparted. It seems like we, we concentrate a lot then in university, then some of, it's a little bit more free, although people also say it's like a pre-professional school in you know, university as well. But you have all this kind of choice at the university level. But what, where, what are we giving young people where they can be self-motivated learners then? Well, let me give you an example of what a colleague of mine did in kindergarten class. His colleague was a frarian, and the colleague uh, took her kindergarten class around the school uh, to describe the things they like and the things they don't like. And so they went in and to the principal's office and said, well, we like the, we like the big comfortable chair in the principal's office. And they would go around, they'd go outside into the recess area and they'd say, well, there's a lot of dog poop uh, on the, in the recess area. We don't like stepping in dog poop when we go to recess. Well, it, it turned out this amazing teacher had her kindergarten students count the dog poop on every single day of the week. And the kindergarten class was able to recognize that there's more, there's more dog poop. Uh, there seems to be more dog poop on Monday. It's fresh on Monday. And they came to realize as a class that that must mean that the people walk their dogs on the schoolyard during the weekend. And so the teacher helped the students uh, become young sociologists at the kindergarten age, and they developed a graph. You know, they graphed every day the dog poop, and then they gave their explanation as to why uh, they think there's so much dog poop on Monday. They went and presented this to City Hall, and the mayor changed the law and made it illegal to walk your dog on school property, not only in that school, but in every school in that particular locality and they 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 put up a, a plaque you know that uh, dogs are, you're not allowed to walk your dog so here are a group of kindergarten kids being trained in the elements of sociology you know graphing and counting and these are kindergarten kids um and uh and and they talked about you know they went in and they they talked about why it's healthier not to have dog poop. So they did, you know, here they did a little research project in kindergarten, so, you know, it can be done with young kids. I'm Dahlia Haddad, a student at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and a collaborator with the creative process. And hearing Professor McLaren's account of this kindergarten class, it became evident that his earlier claim that he works with and provides a narrative as a way to express his expertise and beliefs was in fact incredibly genuine. I work often within the podcast forum and without your movements and your face and all the other trappings that indicate the presence of emotion, it isn't always easy to do what Professor McLaren has done and convince 
day the weight of someone's influence, especially when it doesn't involve yourself. In response to his story and Mia's comment that students often don't remember what they've learned, I feel compelled to tell one of my own, which I believe highlights the way in which teachers can, during our younger informative years, leave us with lessons and memories much more distinct than even recent experiences. When I was in late elementary school, a teacher proposed a project where we would draw and color in a mandala. And in the tradition of Buddhist monks, often in Tibet, they form these incredible mandalas out of sand, and they can spend days and weeks pouring the sand to create these colorful and intricate patterns. And eventually, the wind will wipe them clean off the top of the mountain face. Now, we learned this, and I didn't square what was happening, but when I came to class with my drawing, which I had worked on tirelessly the night before, well, as tirelessly as an 11-year-old can work on something, I got to present to the class the meaning behind my piece. And so every line and every color and the different shades of color and the movement I described an immense amount of meaning to both as I was doing it and retrospectively in an effort to impress this teacher and show him that I cared about this experience. I then, in my head, planned on placing this mandala inside of my memory box and keeping it forever so that at any event I could pull it out and showcase my artistic prowess. Then, after the class presented, our teacher had us stand and walk outside. And in the same way that the Buddhist monks, which we had learned about, could let their beautiful art exist only for those weeks. There was a small tin bucket sitting in front of the class, and we were about to presumably burn our mandalas. I started in the middle of the line and worked my way back and was incredibly hesitant to lose this thing which I had only known for 10 hours. Eventually I was the last one left and my teacher told me you don't have to burn it if you don't want to. And I said great, I won't, I'll keep it forever and I'll show everyone how beautiful it is. And I later eventually did burn the piece and it was one of the most frustrating experiences for my 11 year old self. I was mad that I lost my beautiful art. I was mad that no one else was gonna see it. I was mad at my teacher for not telling me I was gonna have to burn it because I wouldn't have worked as hard on it. And I was mad at myself for burning it because I could have hung it on my wall. In the same way that the kindergarten class conducted its own sociological experiment, my teacher at this age constructed a live-in learning environment, which was incredibly psychological for some of us. And some people didn't care at all, but the ability to create a student experience that was presentation and art and a bonding experience for the class and finally a really hard decision all circle back to something that we had learned about. That is the power of education and those are the lessons that we carry with us and those are the experiences that form the humans that we become and so whether it's drumming before final exams or scouting a playground yard for dog poop, there's a million ways to educate but something that all education should value and hold at its core is creating an environment that works with and for the students so that when you're 21 years old and you're looking back at understanding that great things can be momentary and you have to learn how to let go of things that you love and you care about and it's okay to work hard for something that only exists in a moment and not everything needs to be saved and final you can look back at it with such fondness and gratitude because it was a style of education that Professor McLaren seems to embody and support. 
Paulo Freire warned against what he called the banking education that we're so familiar with. And I've been working in China recently, and I found that banking education is pretty much everywhere in the university, but not actually in, in, in elementary schools, which is interesting in China. Uh, my wife is, is, is from China. Banking education is like depositing information in your head like it's a bank and then checking it out when you need it. It's just these facts that we learn or we memorize. And he was very much uh, against that kind of education, but we still see it. We still see banking education and, and uh, with rote learning. And then we still have the standardized tests, which are problematic. You know, when I first started teaching in that school I told you about, what I did was I have no explanation as to why this, this worked, but I, I had a principal who called himself the hugging principal, and I realized why. He had taken a sledgehammer, and he went, he got, was frustrated one day, and he hammered down the wall to his office with a sledgehammer, moved out all the bricks, swept it up so everybody could have access to his office. He took out his steel desk, and he replaced it with a little pine table and took out his chair and put a rocking chair. And students would come at all different times during the day. They'd come to Jim, and Jim would give them a hug. He was called the hugging principal. And so I, I was mentored by the hugging principal. Um, and so um, what I did was I took out all the furniture. I went into the wealthy districts uh, on garbage day and got some pillows and comfortable furniture and a set of drums you know, that they have in rock bands. And all we did all day, the whole class was drum for a month. We didn't look at textbooks. We didn't do any math. We didn't do any reading. Hey, guess what? Everybody's test scores went up. They were uh, so what? anxious. They could express themselves. You connected yeah. with them. Yeah. Probably I mean, teaching I, them in very subtle ways too, metaphorically, like between the beats, you know what you right. you can remember right. you can memorize a lot of things too, like like with music as a great aid, so <laughs> it's clever. But you know, you mentioned um, Chapman, UCLA, Miami of Ohio. When I was named the most dangerous professor at UCLA, uh, because I was working with uh, you know uh, Hugo Chavez Hugo Chavez a revolutionary government in uh, in Venezuela, you know, that was tough because, you know, um, you know, it, it became an international kind of uh, story. It turned out actually more in my favor because it drew a lot of people's attention to what I was doing and, and people that liked what I was doing. But it also, you know, made education a highly politicized event, you know, and, and so people will often think that critical pedagogy is a form of indoctrination or brainwashing, or you're trying to turn your kid, you, you know, and I, I often get this, um, you're trying to turn, turn the kids against the country, you're trying to make them hate America. And I do, in my books, write an awful lot about things that were not taught in U.S. history, uh, you know, um, the genocide, uh, the echocide. That's why we have echopedagogy. That's why we've developed a branch of critical pedagogy as echopedagogy, omnicide, uh, and epistemicide. Epistemicide is the, the crushing of knowledge systems of indigenous people. 
and their, their, their ways of understanding the world, their world visions, their cosmo visions. And people don't want to be reminded of that. And when you focus lessons on slavery, uh, the slavery of African-Americans or, or the, the, the uh, you know, genocide of, of indigenous people, they think somehow that you want the students to hate the United States. I call it critical patriotism. I think, you know, people can become stronger patriots if you face, you know, some of the horrors uh, that have been perpetrated by governments in the country and that have been hidden or that have been passed over. You know, you do get pushback. You do get pushback. I also want to discuss, and I guess because I, I'm an artist, so I mean, I must, uh, I write as well. These are my two loves. But um, so I learn by making, like creating yeah things and I found at least with this project as well and I would say a lot of the students who come to us a number of them are from the arts or even arts related like they might be studying curation but others are from as I said STEM or law or international studies but they are really they get really excited you know like anyone like one thing they didn't feel they had permission to be creative like you say like they're like afraid it's like a bit too free but on the other thing is that I find, and as an artist, I would, but I find that they respond to it too, is that you learn by making something. It's that thing about like, why am I learning this? Or when I made something, it stays with me. Like I can touch it or I can look at it or whatever. And so I'm really a big fan. And I know that there are certain models that exist about the kind of project-based learning where as opposed to a test, I was gonna illustrate my thing and you go into it. Um, as opposed to a test, like you have people working, like you said, the students, the kindergartners even working on a project and you see its strength because not everyone is going to have the whole, whole rounded. I'm a fan of humanist education models. But it's not gonna, you can't know about everything equally. You'll have a strength, but then you can listen and someone else. And it, mm-hmm. it's how we learn how society works too. But go ahead. I'm talking too much. No, no. I think that's great. Because, and I'll give you an example that sort of, you know, supports what you've just said, a lot of, and it has to do with, you know, becoming um, sort of a, um, a critical educator or, you know, a revolutionary educator. A lot of students will tell me, well, I can't really go in and sort of be a, go in and, and be a part of this social movement because I don't know enough. I haven't read enough books. And they'll say, you know, um, I haven't read this book, I haven't read that book, and I'm not ready. And my argument is that to be critically self-conscious and say engage in a social movement is not a precondition. It's an, the out, an outcome of being part of it. So you begin, you see, we have a term we call praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. It's the, the kind of... Um, it, it's 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 the dialectical sort of intertwining of, of theory and practice. But you begin with practice. You know, it's like John Dewey said, you you know, learn by doing. But you begin with praxis. You begin with practice, and then you reflect upon that practice. Uh, and one one example would be uh, when I was in Venezuela, I was in a barrio, and it was a pretty rough barrio actually. In order for me to actually just go there and visit it, I had to get permission from people in prisons. Some of the leaders that were in prisons, they said, "Okay, let McLaren in." <laughs> so I went. So I went in. I was looking at how they were teaching in this barrio. This was a there was a young guy. He was amazing. He was teaching a course in critical pedagogy, and of course there were people there of all ages. There were teenagers. There were people you know, my age, and there were young people. And each one of them 
was involved in a project. So uh, one group was going to build a pirate radio station to, um, you know, to, to broadcast information that was being withheld in the regular, you know, radio stations. Uh, another group uh, was um, working to create an old age center to care for the senior citizens. Uh, another group um, was uh, helping some of the doctors that had come from, from Cuba. Um, and another one was, was, had to do with, uh, you know, food delivery and things like that. So they were all involved in, they began with a project. And then they would come in the evening, and that's when the class was, and they would reflect on, you know, some of the problems, some of the, uh, some of the issues they were facing, and, you know, asking people in the class, including the teacher and including me, if I had any suggestion. And uh, if, if I, you know, could help them overcome some of the obstacles. And that was like just amazing. With critical pedagogy, now this is interesting. You know, most people will, you know, will say the importance of education is to find out who we are. Who am I? Well, who, who am I is an important question to ask. And some of us can sit in seminar rooms and universities and debate this issue, but not everyone has that opportunity. Some of us can sit in and we can debate it from a feminist perspective. We can debate it from a, you know, post-colonial perspective or whatever. Uh, but I think the, the, the question, the fundamental question is not who am I, but where are you? Where do you stand? That's the first question that critical pedagogy, I think, raises. Where do you stand? And that presupposes an ethical commitment, right? An ethical commitment. That's where liberation theology comes in. They talk about a preferential uh, option for the poor, for the weak, for the immiserated, for those that are needlessly suffering. I change that a little bit, and I think I say we need a preferential, not option, but obligation to help the poor. And the answer to the question, where are you, you know, I think should be, I'm here and I'm here with you. I'm not here for you. I'm not here to speak on your behalf, unless you ask me, but I'm here with you in solidarity with you. And, and you begin, so that's the first question. There's an ethical commitment, you know, you have an ethical commitment, uh, you know, to work on behalf of these groups, or if they, if they invite you, or alongside them as potential allies. And so ethics precedes epistemology. The question, where do you stand? comes before the question, who am I? And so I think that sort of follows along the lines of what you were talking about when you were talking about projects, working with projects, maybe working in multi-age groups or not. And, you know, some people are further ahead than other people. And so you've got a question of, you know, cooperation, which in, in fact precedes, right? You know, it, it precedes uh, cooperation, you know, rather than competition. I like that. Thank you. Well, I think it's so, um, I guess I feel lucky that I had great teachers and I never, in fact, I went to university before I went to like kindergarten because I was brought into the university by my dad. So I never <laughs> felt like unequal. I felt like, oh, I'm just here with all the, you know, so and then I would That's ask great. questions. But um, so I think that, um, so I was fortunate and I think that, you know, education systems that allow I mean, I do also believe in hierarchies, but I do the student-centered learning, that you have something valuable to add. And even with this program, I didn't even, I didn't even think about it as a program. It's just that maybe 
a way of being. Now you are so much further along in all of your contributions to our understanding of um, pedagogy and, 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 and all these systems that you really applied your critical intelligence to. And yet I feel like I could ask questions that if I don't know it from experience, I might be able to ask questions to help others who are also, you know, earlier on in their path, understand it better. So I could be a bridge. And so I love that to do work with students. And so a student's going to anchor this interview. They're going to add their voice, do a creative interlude. They can talk about their life or what they understood. And, and then in some ways it's, um, you know, it's, it's moving towards that equality. Mm-hmm. And, and they love that, you know, they can add their voice to an interview with, you know, an Oscar winning director. And yet, you know, they still, what did they learn from it? And you know what? That Oscar-winning director loves to hear, you know, what this young person who is the beginning of loving film and documentaries, whatever, has to say. Because they were that way, too. They were, you know, they, everyone has a beginning, you know? Um, I, want, I want for this, and I'm, I'm sure, I feel like we share these things in common, that I want to feel that people have access. And just to know that they can. It takes a bit of courage, right? But they can. And that it's just about, you know, being diligent and talent. We live in an unequal society in different countries in different levels, but they have to know that, that that's possible. That really is possible. I, I think it has to do with finding your voice and hearing yourself speak and becoming self-conscious of the fact that you are, an, uh, you are a protagonistic agent of history and not simply a casualty of history. So many people just feel that there's nothing that they can do and they're and, and, and that, you know, and that history will simply overwhelm them. Um, and, and how could they be part of making history? But um, I think, you know, when people can hear themselves speak, when they can become self-conscious of their own agency, you know, that's really the key goal of, of pedagogy is to create. Nobody can teach anybody anything. All we can do is create the conditions of possibility for people to learn. That's just, I think that's another way of saying what you just said. You can't really teach anyone anything. You can only create the conditions for people to learn, the conditions of possibility for them to learn. People learn, right? And, and so we need to create those conditions of possibility for people to learn. And I think that's what you're doing. Oh, thank you. And I think it goes back to that, uh, you know, in contrast to the piggy bank you know, economics of education, you know, the fact that students will come back and they went to good schools, you know, where, you know, actually they had access, but if they're saying, I don't know what I learned, I mean, well, what you're saying is you don't, you didn't learn. You kind of like were, you know, present, but you didn't because it wasn't designed for you really to learn in a critical way, not about awareness so much. It's So, I mean, I, I really love anything like what you're doing that makes us think about how we can improve these models. You know, when I was in China, uh, I was teaching at the university. And, uh, you know, I, I was there, I guess, the last three or four years in Changchun in, in Northeast China. And, uh, you know, my, so I would go in and in some, in some cases I was teaching with a colleague from Chapman. Suzanne Suhu, we were, we were working together. We would uh, divide students into groups and we'd ask them about themselves. Just, we were just starting out, you know. This one student who, who you know, was, was very vocal, he said, why do you want to know what we think 
uh, we want to know what you think uh, because that's how we succeeded. We're here and we're in a, and this was a master's class, uh, we're in a master's uh, class and we've been successful enough to get to a master's degree by, um, you know, by, um, you know, um, memorizing um, what other professors think. And, and so, they, they, so they were the successful ones, right? They didn't really learn anything, but they were successful enough to be in a, in a master's class. And they just couldn't fathom these, these two, you know, these two teachers from the U.S. coming in and completely, you know, beginning with a different approach. They had no sense of, of this. And at the end of the class, the students in the class, I'd say over half of them were weeping, were crying because the class was over. And they'd never shown any emotion, they said, after, after the regular classes. You know, and here they were weeping. Didn't want the class to be over. Wow. That's, that, well, that's beautiful. And that's good teaching. And also, if it's about, if education, I mean, I don't believe so, but if education is really about memorizing, I, I think you know, deep learning, that's a kind of memory, is but when you engage with the emotion, that's what you're saying, you're telling stories, when you get them emotionally, otherwise it's a surface thing, you know, it's something like, it doesn't belong to me, it's a clothing I can take off and then you yeah. forget. And I think it's about changing lives or yes. perspectives. Not that they have your perspective, exactly, but, and this is something I want to do and I, and I think that a lot of people feel it but I wonder how we can actually enact it is that you know good teachers we should be really rewarding our teachers good teachers are like artists I, and I quote this from Steinbeck that they can be like even the greatest artists because their medium is the human mind and spirit right you know changing lives allowing and then allowing others to create it's just like you know directing and theater or whatever that's an art, you know, that's what yeah. you're, you're, and then you're letting them flourish, um, getting them emotionally, intellectually, and um, hopefully then making the wider change in society. But I don't know how, I mean, I, I just think we should, if it's about money and the system is a capitalist system, we should be paying teachers more. You know, I don't know why it's not realized, but I feel like a lot of things like, you know, violence in society, all these things, and if you paid our teachers more, it would help people have a good foundation. We could actually like, divert funds that are being spent to repair damaged society if we put it in at the beginning. No, I absolutely agree. You know, it's interesting. My, my wife um, just finished doing her PhD, and she did it working with graduate students in China. And she has her own background, uh, at least in the university at Chapman, was on th theater and imp impro, uh, improvisation. And, you know, there's, there's uh, Augusto Boal wrote a famous book, A Theater of the Oppressed. He was a great fan of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So he wrote a book, Theater of the Oppressed. And I had the honor of, of speaking with the two of them uh, on stage in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, back in the 1990s, uh, and, and, and it was just a thrilling moment for me to, to be part of the panel with, with the two of them. And they, they developed, you know, um, they developed approaches to learning, you know, through theater, through improvisation. I don't have that background. I wish I had. I think, uh, you know, whenever I listen to, to her, uh, of course, you know, usually she's speaking to, you know, on Zoom with 
with educators, uh, so it's it's in Mandarin, so I, I don't understand what she's saying. But but when we talk uh, together, you know, um, I'm learning an awful lot about about you know utilizing that approach. Of course, it's going to be a lot harder with the with with um, you know the the emphasis on on online learning. It's a little bit harder to to uh, that's that's a challenge for all of us. Um, I've got a class coming up. With uh, it just has twelve students. It's a PhD course. Uh, oh, you, you can get some improv. I just did an event in in New York, a theater event, and I took part on Friday. So there was a whole collection of like theater and writers, and um, so that was nice. So it was. Like, I can yeah. share you a bit on that. But I I kind of did a film, but I also it goes in the panel. But um, and on a side note, theater of the press. I actually wrote a short story that was kind of kind of took a, it was just like the setting of kind of a theater workshop of theater of the press, but yes, it's a little bit imaginative. <laughs> I could share it with you. I want to get to something because I'm always, um, you know, I want to really harness this energy and this optimism, or you might say hope of young people. Like they really, I find, and it, you know, it was in the 60s too, or whatever, it's generational. They are not so much some of them are me generation but they're like they they are willing to look at global warming but somehow or the other you know the big issues whether it's you know world peace or nuclear warfare or whatever they're willing to accept that we have to do something because the doomsday clock and everything so it's like more urgent yeah. and i want to be able to har harness that better i mean i would love and i just then i get these kind of crazy ideas that i feel like it's great to have political solutions say with um these climate conferences or whatever but if we we involve everybody say if we said I'm th I always think about project-based learning or mm -hmm. something to do, um, that if we said like for a year like we assigned to top down bottom up you know not just to the politicians but to the individuals like students you got classes and they're all doing projects around that and even if they don't come up with solution that would work they're all thinking about it they're all willing to reduce because they've been thinking you know like if you assign some of the world problems like and then that's it. And then you're learning economics and you're learning all these other things, but you're applying it. How am I using it? Right. The doomsday clock is ticking. This is our thing. And um, I just feel like we can, we're we not listening to all the voices. We're listening to just, we're being led. No, I think that's a, that, that's a wonderful idea. You know, I think, you know, I, I think education should be project-based, but to have a project of that enormity focused because everything could be covered in a project like that. Like you said, economics, uh, physics, you know, uh, people that might be interested in marine biology, they might be looking at, you know, the fishery, you know, industry, um, people uh, that are, are more interested in, you know, in, in, in the physics of, uh, you know, of, of, or they might be interested in cosmology, or they might be interested, you know, every interest could be incorporated in a project like that, you know? And people that are in the arts could talk about how to perform, uh, how to perform some of these, some of these issues, you know, um, performative pedagogy. And that's, that's something that's really important, you know, learning through performing, um, learning through drama, dramatizing these issues. I was fortunate enough when I was in Canada to, uh, to have my PhD dissertation advisor was Richard Courtney, the late Richard Courtney, who was the leading figure in children's drama in the world at that time. And he wanted me to continue on 
learning through drama. That was around the time I was getting highly politicized. So I, you know, I went to, you know, uh, no, I've got to, I'm sorry, I've got to read uh, Marx and Engels and, uh, uh, you know, um, and, and now as I look back, uh, you know, I could have done both. Uh, and so, um, you know, he wrote a book called The Dramatic Curriculum, where you could learn every single subject uh, and, and in, in a much more engaging way through drama. What's interesting about a theater, or you could say a television company or something like that, is it's, it's actually, I mean, I, you know, television or film that makes a lot of money or whatever, but it's still a kind of socialist model where every, every person counts. Every person is needed. There's not like superfluous. They're all contributing to the whole. And so there's so much about cooperation. There's so much about all, all these elements. So I think that not only that you can teach through drama, but you yeah. can also, artists are in the daily habit of making something. So if yeah. you have a problem you want to solve in the world, they are making conceptual, they're making, you know, plans, they're making concrete those plans. They have different people working on different things. So they, they can also be good problem solvers. And an interesting thing, and it was only pointed out to me, and then it seemed like, oh, it's in a way so obvious, but I never thought of it that way, was the, uh, the director of the Palabalist Dance Company. He said to me, you know, most or all of the world's problems are actually design problems. So really, because that really kind of opened my eyes. Like, so me as an artist, because I'm thinking and I can think in design, I could that could be applied elsewhere. Now, there would be yeah. other people who contribute their expertise. But when you think about it, and I think I was just uh, doing an interview with the um, director of the Museum of Design in Chicago, and uh, it's design is not just superficial. Design, uh, our response to the coronavirus is a bad, it, it, we've had bad design decisions. Oh, and in yeah. fact, the coronavirus, our viruses are intelligent design, right? You know, you have to think ahead. They're always adapting. And, uh, you know, our political systems, countries are designs, laws are designs. So it's interesting. Well, I've heard there's a, a mutation on that uh, virus that's come out of Malaysia that's um, 10 times more powerful. Um, oh, don't tell me. I haven't... Uh... But when you think of what, what, what teachers are facing, however, I mean, it's interesting because we haven't looked at the, the whole issue of, you know, the privatization of learning, the homeschooling, and the, 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 the power of the religious right, who would probably have, you know, major objections to, to much of the discussion that we've had today. You know, the, the sort of um, evangelical prosperity gospel and the, the power that has over young people and families. I've been writing a great deal. I've actually written 10 pieces on that over the last three or four months on that. Um, you know, we got Betsy DeVoice as the Secretary of Education. So, um, it's called He Walks Among Us. When, when would that be appearing? Yes, it's going to be They Walk Among Us. Oh, sorry. Uh, hopefully, that'll come out. You know, I've, I've, a couple of my books just came out, and this would be the this would be another one. I don't know if I could, that's going to be tough, but um, yeah. It's, uh, it's in production now. The question is getting permission, you know, and when you get permissions, you actually go into the, you go to the publishing, publisher's web, and you ask for permission to reprint stuff, and, uh, and you get a robot, basically, you know. So that's, um, that you, you can't predict when you're going to get an answer to that. I'm hoping it'll be in production very, very soon. 
But uh, yeah, so there's that whole element too. It's got a real hold, stranglehold on what's happening now, where money's being, you know, the, the, the attack on public schooling, the attack the, on the very notion of public schooling, you know, money being diverted from public schools to private religious schools. And you know, hey, I'm a, I'm Catholic. <laughs> you know, I, I, I uh, you know, I got no problem with prayer and and uh, and issues like that. You know, I'm I'm very much involved in liberation theology, which came out of the pastoral tradition in Latin America, where priests ended up standing side by side with peasant groups who were being massacred. And uh, and I write quite a bit about that so but i'm just a little terrified at what's happening now in the broader arena with you know school funding and with the attack on public schooling and with with the move to privatize education yeah so that so it's you know that's another you know what what would what would those families think of of our suggestions today <laughs> i you know it's, it's about degrees, because I actually had an interview the other day with a, a jazz harpist, and he homeschools. I don't think it's because he's Christian. I think he, it might be, but he's very, I mean, he's very cool. I mean, he's a jazz harpist, Edma Castaneda, maybe you know him. And, um, wow. but he just liked the freedom of teaching. It's a responsibility with oh, yeah. the freedom of teaching his, his, his oh, yeah. No, homeschooling is, is, is not, not a bad thing. Um, but I, I was referring to homeschooling for religious reasons. Close, yeah, to close the mind. And it was interesting, we didn't go too deeply into it, because, I mean, obviously he hasn't devoted his life to pedagogy, but, I mean, he homeschools, so. Uh, and he said, oh, fewer hours of teaching. Let them play. I mean, he lets his, yeah. you know, he's, he, they're all musicians. Like, his two kids are musicians. I've seen them perform in Connecticut. Like, they're amazing, the whole family. And um, so it's about a joy. So it's cultivating a joy. And cause some of those things that we're talking about, he doesn't feel like they have to know everything, but they'll get good at this thing, these things that they're good at. Mm -hmm. So I think that that fun in education is good too, because I find, well, I like things to be fun. I find like creatively, like if you're, if you're enjoying yourself, that's a struggle to make good quality work, but you're enjoying yourself. So it kind of flows out of you. And yeah. education is the same thing. Yes. You love it. Like for yeah. me, we're, we're lucky. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a nonprofit. I'm an artist, but I enjoy what I do. So, so many people, and this seems so crazy. It's a quality of life thing. I want everyone to have a good quality of life, but can we even dream bigger? Can we hope that people will actually love what they do or have a reasonably developed hobby that they can devote time to that they love? Well, for me, it's playing the blues. <laughs> but I do agree. We need joy. We need joy. We, we need delight. You know, people often lose that when they enter school. But the longer they're in school, you know, the less they, they, the less they, they, they maintain their capacity for joy and the joy of being together, of working together, the joy of discovery, you know. Um, the joy of, of, of understanding when you can do something that's meaningful, and not just for yourself, but for others. That's really a true joy, when you're doing something meaningful and joyful, uh, and you're not just doing it for yourself, but you're doing it to help others, you know, your friends, right, your family, and the community, the surrounding community, and even beyond that. I would love for everyone to have access to that. I mean, if, if I can share it in a little way, or that 
you know, there's always going to be mundane jobs. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like delusional that I think that everyone's going to just go skipping to work. But even if there's a sense of community in a mundane job or that they can introduce a bit of artistry where they can express themselves so not everyone is a cog, you know, it, replaceable, um, you know, that just does so much. And I think that it, we could divert expenses that we have to pay for, uh, I don't know, like security, you know, all these things that, that are the result of a society that's damaged. And I think you've spoken about it as well. We in America have the particularly strong in America, the, um, epidemic of school shootings. We're working with one of the students from the Parkland, Florida on a project and they came to us and um, so they need the healing. I mean, I can't imagine what that's like, you know, their parents and the, the students, but um, that is a symptom of things going wrong, right? No, I mean, really, it's a, it's a culture that we could call a pathology. You know, it's a culture of death. Um, it's, it's, there's a phenomena that <clears throat> It's called doom scrolling, and unfortunately, I think I've become become a doom scroller. That because I'm writing constantly, um, doom scrolling is when you when you read uh, articles uh, on the internet and you keep scrolling. You know they're going to upset you. You know they're going to be have have. You know they're going to affect you in a negative way psychologically. But you keep on reading because I need to read those because I I'm generating articles uh, trying to warn people about about you know the, path the pathocracy you know that we live in it can be absolutely devastating in this culture here this culture of madness this culture of racism this culture of white supremacy and now the media has 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 made you know everyday incidents of racism now I mean they're being people are 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 filming them uh, they're filming enraged white people attacking people of color, um, and they're capturing it on their cell phones. And and you know you can see these uh, um, on a daily basis. They're they're part of sort of the, the news cycle, and it just it just uh, pummels you, and in in you know it's it's hard to believe that so many people are walking around, uh, you know with such hate and malice, it can affect you, and I'm sure it affects young people. Wow. Well, I, you know, certainly, uh, as if you're an aware person and you're informed about, you know, as is our responsibility, it can be hard to maintain your sense of joy and hope. So I think that it's admirable that you have this, you know, mission in life and that you have maintained that because you wouldn't continue to work for it. You do have that hope and you have shared it with others. So I guess, I mean, something I ask of students, but I, I think that I, I, I think you have many, I ask them what their wish is for the future, but I think you have many. So I guess maybe I should ask and narrow it down. I should just think, you know, as you look towards the future, um, in the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, I'd like, I'd like, well, I'd like people to know themselves. Um, I'd like people to know themselves, and and to and to appreciate who they are, uh, and to and, and in order for them to appreciate who they are, we have to appreciate and we have to learn to appreciate them. So we have a responsibility for how people are going to be thinking about themselves in the future. We bear that responsibility. All of us bear that responsibility now 
And I think that what, what strikes me is that we need to create the conditions of possibility for young people to feel a sense of self-worth and dignity. And, and of course, to create the conditions of possibility uh, of love, you know? I mean, love, really, a love that, that, that animates our deepest and symbolizes our deepest yearnings and sense of belonging. Well, I think that's so beautiful, and you certainly demonstrate that in your your life's work. So I, I want to thank you, uh, Peter McLaren, for your lifetime commitment to social and economic justice, uh, critical pedagogy based on um, ethics and equal access, and showing us through your teaching, writing, and life how we might leave the world a better place. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Dahlia Haddad. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Inodilus and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.